Thanks for listening to this episode of the Baptist Review Podcast. I'm your host, David Sons. Today's episode is the first in a series of interviews with Southern Baptist Convention President Bart Barber. Bart is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas, and is serving his second term as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Today in our first interview, I'm joined by my colleague Rob Collingsworth to talk with Bart about cooperation throughout the SBC, the office title function of pastor within the local church, and a proposed constitutional amendment before the messengers this summer at the annual meeting in Indianapolis, including whether or not Bart himself would be in favor of the amendment. I'm thankful for Bart's thoughtful and clear answers to the questions we asked him, and I hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged by our conversation. Before we jump into this episode, I want to mention one of our sponsors for today's episode, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Hey, have you been called to do ministry, but maybe you don't know or think that you can afford to pursue a Master of Divinity degree? Well, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary wants you to know that there has never been a better time to answer God's call to prepare and do an MDiv at Southeastern. With extensive scholarship and financial assistance options at Southeastern, many students are able to receive rigorous, biblical, theological, and ministerial training in our Master of Divinity program at little to no cost. Visit sebts.edu slash mdiv to find out more about how you can get your Master of Divinity fully funded today. Welcome to this episode of the Baptist Review Podcast. I'm your host, David Sons, and this is part one of what we hope to be a five-part interview with Southern Baptist Convention President Bart Barber. And so, Bart, thanks so much for being here with us. It's a lot of fun. I'm thankful to come visit with you guys. Well, we're certainly thankful to have you. And also joining me in this interview is Rob Collingsworth. Rob is our editorial director at the Baptist Review and also uh, works at Crystal College here in Texas. Rob, thanks for joining us as well. Wouldn't rather be anywhere else. All right, Bart. So this this is where we wanted to start with you on everyone's favorite topic, the Constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention and the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I know that you keep those tabs open on your phone. So go ahead and pull them up so we can have a point of reference here. And, uh, and Rob and I would love to just have a conversation a little bit about cooperation. Uh, I think one of the things that we know is a major part of uh, the efforts of the Southern Baptist Convention. It is built on trust and cooperation. And that, that's that been under some strain, uh, really not just recently, but there's always strains and tension on our cooperative efforts. And so we'd love to talk with you just a little bit about some of the present uh, strains on cooperation and really then some of our hopefulness for the future of cooperation as well. Yeah, Bart, I'm going to start out uh, at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Um, In the beginning. <laughs> so before we jump it's, into- like, make a song that yeah, says that. Yeah, that would be a yeah. yeah, bestseller. Uh, before we jump into actual content from the BFNM, I did want to ask a question about the preamble. And this is actually comes from a, a friend of ours, David Norman, who, uh, you know, it was, it was in a conversation with David that I was having sometime last year when he said, you know, I'll tell you what's changed my my view on some of the things that are facing the convention right now. He said, I went back and I read the preamble, to which I said, there's a preamble? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> of no, course I'm, there is. I'm sure I, had, I'm sure I was aware of that before, but I hadn't. I hadn't Got it crocheted <laughs> on a pillow on my bed. That, no, uh, that, that I would believe, um, <laughs> if anyone did. Uh, no, but I, I went back and, and really studied the preamble. And so my question for you is this. According to the preamble, which has preceded uh, every iteration of the uh, BFNM, all, all three major iterations. And we've, we've really maintained that language since 1925. So this is 100-year-old almost language. What is the purpose of the Baptist faith and message according to those people who have authored it and then the conventions that have adopted 
1925, the 1963, and the 2000. Well, you can summarize a numbered list that they give uh, in the <laughs> in the preamble to talk about why it is that we uh, that we that we put out statements of faith uh, rather than listing out all five of the attributes that they give there. I'll just say that um, um, we have shared beliefs and we like to articulate them uh, because. Uh, People outside our body misunderstand what we believe or misrepresent what we believe. And also people inside our body uh, may come to a point where they're unclear about what we believe and teach. And so there's a there's an important teaching function that is accomplished by publishing confessions of faith. The the preamble itself identifies the document as a statement of consensus. Can you can you describe what you interpret that to mean, and what I guess you would interpret it not to mean? Well, um, actually, what it says uh, is that they it, it constitutes a consensus of belief at the time that it was adopted uh, by the body that adopted it, and you know, really, where the rub comes in is um, when we try to make use. Of these statements of faith, uh, the the documents themselves are pretty consistent in saying that they're not authoritative, um, and for good reason. Scripture is what is authoritative, uh, but also beyond Scripture, the um, the 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 vote of the messenger body is authoritative. And I, there's good biblical reason for that. Uh, the the Bible says nothing to us about here, now that you have these writings, let us tell you about the other writings that you should produce <laughs> that uh, summarize these writings. But we do find uh, Jesus speaking about how the how he's present when two or three gather in his name and about how the Holy Spirit gives leadership to living, breathing uh, people who come together uh, to to make good decisions for churches and for enterprises that we're engaged in, and um, so what's what's authoritative in the Southern Baptist Convention is the messengers get together and vote on things, and so that's why it's helpful when the messengers get together and say, "Let us remove all mystery and tell you what we believe." Uh, that what's the consensus of our belief about what we think are important elements of the faith uh, so that so that it minimizes the degree to which people are shocked by the voting outcomes of things that the messengers do if they have given some information about what they believe. Uh, the longer that one of those confessions of faith ages, the more that you have to wonder whether the consensus of that body from way back then mm. is actually still the consensus of the body that's here today. Uh, and ultimately, that messenger body is never dethroned by our statements of faith. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bart, I think a lot of our listeners, probably most of our listeners, would say that they agree with the Baptist faith and message on most of what is contained within it. Um, some of the disagreement has been about how our confession of faith works in conjunction with our Constitution. Uh, there was some added language to the Constitution some years ago that stated that a church now must closely identify 
with the Baptist faith and message in order to be considered a cooperating church within the SBC. And so how does the language of closely identifies change the way we utilize the Baptist faith and message? So um, obviously added language is added for a reason. Mm. And um, it, it does make some important changes, I think. Uh, first of all, it's that, that language is added in Article 3 of the Constitution. Uh, it's the first time that the Constitution makes explicit reference to the Baptist faith and message as one element of what it means to be a church that's cooperating with the convention. Um, that's one of the reasons why I think it's very important that we take action to change how quickly one can amend the Baptist faith and message. Because uh, in effect, from the moment that we put that closely identified language into the, the Constitution, we made the Baptist faith and message part of the constitutional governance of the convention. Uh, when you change the Baptist faith and message, you're necessarily changing what it means to closely identify with the Baptist faith and message. And uh, so I think that the incorporation of that language did create a change uh, in the way that the Baptist faith and message is used in the convention. Some of the, I would say, debate about uh, how the BFNM is used in uh, the SBC comes around, or most of it kind of centers around, at least recently, Article 6 of the BFNM on, on the church. Uh, uh, and so uh, how would you um, interpret, or, or how do you see or understand Article 6 and its function within uh, uh, our cooperationist convention? I think Article 6 is one of the most important articles in the Baptist faith and message. And, you know, I'm saying that, although there are articles on the Trinity and <laughs> salvation <laughs> sure, and sure. things like that. Yeah. But I think it's in, what I mean by that when I say Article 6 is, is, is one of the most important articles is that what we say about the Trinity is essentially what all Orthodox Christians say about the Trinity in the Baptist faith and message. So if the Baptist faith and message made no mention of the Trinity, or if it did not exist, you could get good Trinitarian uh, doctrine somewhere else. Uh, and the same thing, I mean, not everywhere would give you good soteriology, but you could get soteriology a lot of places other than the Baptist faith and message. But the Baptist movement uh, is an ecclesiological movement in its heart, in its essence. Uh, Baptists uh, in their modern iteration have come into existence around defending some ideas about the church. And so I think everyone who wants to think of themselves as Southern Baptists should read Article 6 very closely. Uh, you'll find the kernel there of much of what it means to be Southern Baptist. Um, it starts out by saying that a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. That's important. Uh, we, we turn to the idea of what is a church every time we try to sort out what a church has done and whether the church has done it. If a pastor does something, does that mean the church has done it? Uh, well, we say a church is the congregation of baptized believers. It talks about covenant and faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing two ordinances of Christ. The, so the Baptists have believed that the Lord's Supper and baptism are the two ordinances of the church. Um, and, um, you know, it continues to talk about 
gifts and rights and privileges and the laws that govern the church and the extension of the gospel is the purpose uh, that the church is seeking. Uh, each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. Business meetings are part of what it means to be Baptist. Uh, and probably the part that gets the most attention these days, if you skip on down a little bit, is where it says its two scriptural offices are that of pastor, elder, overseer. That's new language there. Recently the reamended. Recently. Yeah. Uh, but it's really not new language. I know. It's, that's what I meant. That's why I said re, 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 reintrodu- reintroduced the, is so perhaps the, better. So the initial version of the Baptist faith and message used elder or bishop. Yes. And the word pastor was absent. And then in... Uh, the 1963 revision, uh, the word pastor was added, and they subtracted elder and bishop. Mm-hmm. And um, then here recently, um, uh, Jared Cornut of Alabama uh, brought a motion this year to amend the Baptist faith and message to add... Who we may hear from in a later episode. Uh, <laughs> to, spoiler alert. To, to add back in the language of elder and overseer, which really helps to create a historical integrity for the document, I think, because it brings in the original language and the newer language, and it shows that that's been intended to be synonyms, not synonyms maybe, but all complementary descriptors of the same office Mm. uh, in in Baptist life. And a quick, quick aside, though, I mean, David and I, as members of the 2023 Resolutions Committee, probably remember those resolutions more so than most folks. I think sometimes they fade into the distance for folks. Some don't, uh, but some do. But we passed a resolution this past year that was saying essentially the same thing, that the confessional history of our uh, document has these these two offices, and one is, I think that one used the word bishop instead of of overseer, but bishop, pastor, elder, bishop, and then uh, deacon. So... That's not. This is not a new thing. It's been in our confession, and we even before the Baptist faith and message was amended, passed a resolution saying essentially the identical thing. And this is something that is also not only is it not novel to the Baptist faith and message; it's not novel to Baptist confessions of faith. Mm. The idea that pastor and elder and overseer are the same thing, and that they are one of two offices of the church, is something consistently traceable throughout 400 years of Baptist confessions of faith on various sides of the Atlantic Ocean and among uh, uh, very diverse bodies of Baptist life. I think it's worthwhile to – some of the simple questions that are here that that we sort of assume that, that really people may not have been – well, for, for a while we didn't talk about ecclesiology as much as we have at other times. So you may, you may be listening to this. You may have gone to a Baptist seminary and may have not really studied much about what the Baptist faith and message is talking about here in Article 6. Uh, probably if you went to seminary recently, maybe you yeah, delved into it a little bit those more. Conversations. But, sure, but, but, but earlier on, maybe not as much. And you know where it says it's two scriptural offices. What, what even is the idea of a scriptural church office? Uh, and I've talked to people about this who said, I'm not even sure what they're talking about. Uh, and... Um, a church office is someone who is occupying an official position selected by the church to serve the church. And so it's a, it's an office of the church. And nobody, 
nobody nobody's the pastor of a subset of a church. Hmm. You know, uh, according to us, these are offices of the church, and they're they're scriptural. These are the scriptural church offices. Our church has a financial secretary. Our church has uh, somebody who directs a weekday preschool. Uh, we have someone who helps us to do to to direct our missions programs that reach. I, I think we have great flexibility to look and say we're going to make something up to address a need that we see. I don't think there's a thing wrong with that. And if next week First Baptist Farmersville thought that it would be helpful to hire someone, maybe even who's seminary trained, and say to them. We just want you to take our social media feeds over and use social. You're going to be our social media director and you're going to use Twitter and Facebook and Be Real and Instagram and whatever to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want you to be seminary trained because we want good theology to be on what we're putting out and, and we're going to bring you in to do that. Well, that's not in the Bible, there's no scriptural social media direction uh, for a local church. But I think we have the freedom to create things that are not biblical. But what we've done through Article 6 and just consistently in the history of our churches is to point to deacons and to point to these pastors, elders, and overseers and say, you know, your church can be a healthy church with a social media director or without a social media director. But if your church says, we're not going to have pastors, elders, overseers, we're not going to have deacons, then we think at that point you have relinquished something that's part of the biblical formula for what a church is. You know, a church office is different from a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift, the church doesn't get to choose who gets spiritual gifts. Both of them have to do with the basic biblical principle that different people in a church have different roles in the church and pursue different activities in the church. And that's part of God's goodness given to us in the church, that we have people who are all able to contribute a little bit differently. But nobody gets to choose what your spiritual gifting is other than the Holy Spirit. But we find in the Scripture a couple of places where churches are told your job as a congregation is to look around and figure out, applying biblical qualifications to look around and figure out whom you would install into these positions. And that's what a church office is. It's when the church does that. Okay, Bart, I, I think, based on what you're saying, I, I would have a hard time thinking that anyone listening who's a Southern Baptist would would disagree with much, if any, of what you said thus far. So in the interest of making things more interesting, um, <laughs> why, if that if that all is true and we all kind of agree on that, and I think we do, I think everything you just said, I, every Southern Baptist I know would, would listen to what you just said and go, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But we don't all disagree, or we don't all agree on everything. So why are we disagreeing on some things, if we do agree on everything you just said about the offices and the fact that they exist and that churches should should have people who are biblically qualified occupying them, what are we disagreeing about? Go go into details because we are we are clearly disagreeing. There is division within mm-hmm. the convention regarding application of Article Six, that end part when it's talking about particularly office of pastor, elder, overseer. Yeah. Why are we disagreeing? Permit me to identify the sub- Southern Baptists who are wrong. 
Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, we, you know, that's a little bit of humor there. Let me tell you though, that's sincerely, that's sincerely held. I'm about to describe another perspective on this that I, that I think runs contrary to what the Bible teaches. That I know runs contrary to what Baptist Confessions of Faith have taught for a long time. It does not mean that I'm plotting to run you out of the Southern Baptist Convention, but I do want to persuade you, uh, and I do hope that you'll that you'll hear this. There is a point of view that's not entirely without merit that seeks to separate the word pastor from the word elder and overseer. Okay, and. Um, now, in a sense, what you're doing when you're doing that is saying that there are three scriptural offices of the church rather than two, and that's not what the Baptist Faith of Message or any of the Baptist Confessions of Faith say. Um, or you're trying to say that, uh, that, that pastor is not a spiritual office of the church. Instead, it's a spiritual gift. And... Um, and scripturally, most of the proponents of this would hold this as an interpretation of Ephesians 4. Is that That's right. right. Okay. That's exactly right. In fact, some people will say erroneously yeah. that the only place that the noun appears is in Ephesians chapter 4. Well, it also appears in First Peter, uh, referring right after it talks about people who are shepherding the church. It says when the chief shepherd arrives. There the noun form is used obviously in conjunction with a discussion about elders and, and pastors and overseers. But, um, but yeah, there are people who look at that. They say, this is in Ephesians chapter 4. It's in, a, it's in a list of spiritual gifts. That list of spiritual gifts is notably different from other lists of spiritual gifts uh, because it lists things that are titled positions. It talks about apostles. Apostles, right. Okay, yeah. it lists things that are clearly titled positions in the church. Um and and are something of an office. Uh, we we see early in Acts that you didn't become an apostle just by kind of announcing. The apostles applied some qualifications and chose uh, Matthias to be someone who would be an apostle. And so the early church felt that that apostle was an office uh, in their in their actions. Um, now, of course, Jesus came back and gave them Paul to be an apostle, but you know he had to gain recognition as an apostle later on. Um, so, so people will point at that, and 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 there are two groups of people. It's worthwhile to differentiate them. First of all, they're just egalitarians. There are some of those in the Southern Baptist Convention who would just look and say, "Whatever a man can do, a woman can do." There are no gender distinctions. Flattened distinctions. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but then there are also some people who would say, we will use the word pastor to describe people who are pastoring as a spiritual gift rather than as an office. But then other times we use the word to describe someone who's occupying a scriptural office of right. pastor, elder, overseer. So they're talking about two different uses of the same word uh, when they're doing that. And, Which is why I think some of this debate is, why do I care what another church calls their staff members, right? I think that we've right. kind of heard this reduced. I, I think some of this discussion reduced to that. It's just like, why do we care what other churches call their staff members? Um, but I think what you're getting to is, it, it, it like the idea of pastor, elder, bishop, overseer is describing a specific office. I mean, it's even in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a much lengthier article 
on these things, if you go back and look at that confession of faith. And the words pastor, elder, and overseer are just intermingled throughout the entire discussion uh, in this historic British Baptist confession of faith. And so I think it, it is something that's an important part of who we are as Baptists. Um, and, you know, I also think, I was talking to somebody about this not long ago who holds that other point of view. And I said, you know, I think if you really thought that pastor was just a spiritual gift, you wouldn't only be giving it to people who are employed by your church mm. because spiritual gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit throughout the body of the church. And, uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, they're really good at shepherding people. So is every good Sunday school teacher at First Amen. Baptist Church Farmersville. <laughs> Amen. Really yeah. good at shepherding people. Yeah. And so, Mothers and fathers, home yeah. group leaders. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's worthwhile to privilege these scriptural offices that are an important part of the church by reserving terminology to refer to them and not to anything else. And uh, so again, I'm not I'm not making a case for booting you out of the SBC, but I really would like to persuade you if you hold this different point of view uh, to to think through the scriptural and theological implications of it. Hey, today I want to talk about one of our sponsors, Lifeline Children's Services, who is making a difference in the lives of vulnerable children around the world. Have you ever wondered how you can bring gospel hope to those children who may never experience adoption? While adoption is incredible, many children face challenges, age, special needs, and circumstances that keep them vulnerable to exploitation. But here's the good news. You can provide them with gospel hope. In 2009, Lifeline launched their Unadopted program with a mission to reach unadoptable children with the hope of the gospel. They equip caregivers, they provide life skills training, and support local churches ministering to the vulnerable. Globally, Lifeline is breaking barriers, and your church can partner with them, offering resources and support to ministries abroad, raising, educating, and ministering to orphans in inaccessible locations. You can join the movement today by considering sponsoring a child or becoming a church partner for Global Orphan Care with Lifeline. Let's bring gospel hope to every child. Visit lifelinechild.org today, and together we can make a lasting impact. Hey, I want to mention and thank one of our sponsors, the North American Mission Board. Uh, if you're like me, I really like seeing different pastors and writers and thinkers put together lists of books that they're reading or have enjoyed lately. And I saw that J.D. Greer did a list of favorite books at the end of last year, where he concluded not just books, but also a podcast at the end. He recommended Reconstructing Faith. This is Trevin Wax's documentary-style podcast with the North American Mission Board. And I want to read what J.D. said about it. He said, Trevin goes subject by subject to show you where the state of the discussion is related to things like sex, gender, masculinity, Christian institutions, the crisis of authority, and other things pertaining to Christian witness. It is like two seasons full of a seminary course. I encouraged everyone on our staff and in the Summit Collaborative to pay close attention to this podcast because it's a great listen. I think that's a great word from J.D., and we are super thankful for the North American Mission Board and Reconstructing Faith for sponsoring this week's episode. So, Bart, I'll, I'll follow up on that. It, it seems that if you look at the numbers from this past annual meeting, the vote to sustain the executive committee's decision on both Saddleback Church in California and Fern Creek in Kentucky. Those were overwhelming, over 90% for both of those votes. Breathtaking. 
I mean, with I mean, what's the joke? If there's three of us here, we got four opinions, yeah, right? right? Like, right. yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I think we are all on the same page with what do we think about women who are functioning as elders? You know, when when they're they're they're. Uh, their job is to be regularly preaching, or they are just unashamedly the, uh, admittedly not biblical title, but the senior pastor of a church. We have which, even more data than that. If you go down to the state convention level and see how state conventions have addressed it, I think it's clear that uh, it's a day to really be discouraged if you're an egalitarian Southern Baptist <laughs> because you are in a very, very small minority. Yes, and I would say that... I. I, I don't know any of those people. I, I don't know the people who say women should be functioning in the senior pastor slash elder overseer role. I, those If those people exist in the in the SBC, I don't know them. And they probably do. I'm, we'll you know, I'm yeah, saying yeah. They're, sure, the they're certainly there. Of she's not here I don't anymore, know them. Yeah. I don't know them. And again, yeah. I don't know everybody. Yeah. So my question is this. If we are in very – I mean like the data proves out that we're in agreement that we don't, we don't think the scripture supports – women being in that authoritative office that is a scriptural office that we now in our Baptist faith message use pastor, elder, overseer interchangeably to describe that, right? If that's the case, why is there so much division and discord over the law amendment, which purports to only be about women pastors, which again, the data shows that it seems like we're pretty united on that. And depending on who you ask, I I wish we'd had a ballot vote for the first vote of the the law amendment we had a lot of ballot votes <laughs> we sure did we sure did i wish i just you've wish just we had revealed, the numbers you've just revealed that you're not on the tellers committee <laughs> that's uh, true god yeah. bless don yeah. Kearns. don current yes. is sweating god somewhere that you're saying. Saying. Exactly um, right. more ballot votes so but if we're so united about hey saddleback is not one of us fern creek's not one of us and and i think we should probably drop the language of kicking them out we've withdrawn fellowship we just have said y'all have moved and we're we have not so y'all have moved we we haven't uh, they're no longer Southern Baptist. Why is there so much division and discord over this amendment that, again, it, it purports to only be about that, but it, it seemingly isn't based on the division of people who oppose the law amendment but also oppose women pastors? Some of it is because terminology gets out of sync with our belief, mm. and that creates confusion. Uh, that's one of the things that I would say to those churches that I'm trying to persuade. I would say just look at... Look at how much you're confusing sister churches that are around you that are looking at what you're doing. It is difficult. Uh, Saddleback, uh, they had Stacy Wood serving uh, on their on their staff, and Andy and Stacy Wood, by all accounts, are are really neat people. Uh, sure, and um, and had a long history with Southern Baptists. Graduates uh, of Southwestern, or at least he is. I don't yeah, know who she is. Yeah, and. Um, she she did not carry the title of elder, and and they have they have functionality. I mean, the elder's not just a title. There are meetings she didn't go to, uh, things she wasn't a part of. Uh, but I think the convention and the credentials committee and the and the executive committee uh, could look and see that she was in a position where she had been selected by the church to serve the whole church hmm. in a teaching capacity which is a central part of what it means to be an elder or an overseer or a pastor. And um, so I think the convention could look at that and say it's it's irregular, according to what we've said we believe, to say this person's a pastor but they're not an elder. But as we look at this, we see someone 
whose function, because in the New Testament, when it talks about elders, it's not talking about a meeting that's held on Tuesday night somewhere. The primary function that's discussed there is the teaching right. function. You know, the one thing they're suppo- supposed to be qualified to do is they apt to teach. Mm-hmm. And they are they do rule also, the elders that rule well. Uh, but as you, as you look at that teaching function that she had, Southern Baptists took a look at that and said, you know what, you're using titles in a way that's strange, but we look at her and we see that we think she's functioning in this office of pastor at your church, and that's a bridge too far for us. Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of Southern Baptists uh, could could look at someone who's serving really as a children's minister at a church, that that church has decided to call that person children's pastor. And some Southern Baptists would look at that and say, you've used the word pastor that goes contrary to our statement of faith. We're ready to take the same action toward you as we did towards Saddleback that has a woman teaching the whole congregation from the pulpit as a pastor uh, because you've used the word pastor, okay? And I think there are others who look and say, you've used the word pastor, and we know what a pastor is, and she's not one. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I think Dr. Moeller was right that we know what a pastor is. And I think sometimes we look at what a church has done with a title and say, we know what a pastor is, and that ain't one. Mm. And, um, and when we do that, I think a lot of people are reluctant to 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 back away from fellowship with a church that's just doing something weird with titles. Uh, now, I wish they wouldn't. Again, if your titles are confusing, all the churches around you, are you sure they're not confusing the people in your church too? Great point. That's and great, I great think point. we should make an effort to try to be clear with what we do in terms of titling. But, um, but, but I, I do also think that sometimes, let's just be frank about this. Sometimes churches choose their titles without very much theological without reflection. That's exactly right. Without and a some, lot of thought. Sometimes we, we're now calling our children's minister, our kids' minister. Do you know why it's kids instead of children? Because somebody else did it, and when she came in, she said, call me the kids' minister. Call me the kids and minister. so that's, right. that's that, some of this is just trendy. We just, we just follow what other churches have done. And I would just say that we should, that we should really reflect deeply on the way we use these titles. You mentioned just a minute ago, just this idea of clarity. And I think that is something that we're really searching for in, in you know, I, I think like Rob said, we're in agreement on a lot of this, on most of this. I think it's just looking for some clarity on office title function. And, and one of the ways that has been presented that the Southern Baptist Convention could find some clarity on this is through a constitutional amendment, as Rob mentioned just a moment ago, uh, the law amendment, which uh, was voted on in New Orleans and passed uh, by two-thirds majority and now will be voted on again in Indianapolis um, and adding that as a part of, of, of Article three, Article 3. And so it's Mike Law who introduced it. Juan Sanchez made um, an amendment to it and Anyway, uh, but let me just kind of do this, Bart. Obviously, most of our listeners, if they're listening to this, they understand the background of this, but let's just kind of do best case, worst case. Uh, we're going into this in, in Indianapolis. There's going to be a vote. Um, best case scenario, if the law amendment passes, what would you say is best case scenario if it passes? You know, if it passes, I think it's affirming good theology. I think the best case would be that that winds up being something that is persuasive and instructive 
so that you have churches that uh, that really are complementarian, that are using titles differently, that stop and take a deep breath and look at themselves and say, you know, thousands of our sister churches think that this is a bad thing, so we're going to change our terminology. And obviously, I think that would be an improvement if those churches change their terminology. That's probably the best outcome that happens is that we don't lose a bunch of churches that really are essentially complementarian, and they just make some changes to their nomenclature, and there's greater clarity for everybody, and we move forward together. And I think that answer is worst case. Worst case scenario is it, it, it actually does kind of cause this exodus of churches where they go, hey, I don't know that we're in line with what the Southern Baptist Convention has just passed. W- would you say that potentially could be the worst case scenario for this if it, if it were to pass? That's a bad case, but it's not the worst case. Uh-huh. Uh, I can imagine worse cases than that. Um, well, let, do, do let's expound. Say, do I expound. will. I will. Let's, let's say that we adopt it. And that churches that truly are complementarian say, well, we're leaving because we have, uh, we're, we've used titles this way and we don't want to change it. Uh, and we're not even going to listen to the case that you make because you're trying to hold a, a gun to our head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like it or not, Baptists are independent-minded and autonomous in our nature. And when you start the conversation with an ultimatum, sometimes you shut down the opportunity to persuade. Mm. Uh, I mean, if if you look at the two most massive changes theologically that have happened in the Southern Baptist Convention in my lifetime, it's been the growth of Calvinistic soteriology, and it's been the growth of elder governance, elder leadership within congregationalism, uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, those things, nobody can deny that those things have grown like wildfire in our convention, and neither of them have involved changing the constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention or the content of the Baptist faith and message. People just stood up and made a persuasive biblical case mm. for those things. And when people were left free to choose without an arm twisted behind their back, a lot of people read the book went to the program, saw the PowerPoint slide, read the blog post, and said, they make a good point. I'm going to change what I'm doing. I'm going to change what's happening here at our church. I think we ought to dance with the one that brung us. <laughs> and instead of deciding to try to strong-arm people with the governing documents of the convention, I think that we ought to believe in persuasion again mm-hmm. and just see what happens if we trust our theology and articulate it and allow people... So, so. One bad outcome is that people who truly are complementarian, who just changed, they didn't understand why it would matter that they've done terminology this way, they're unwilling to listen at all, and they all leave. And then on top of that, you have other churches that leave who say, we don't title anybody pastors around here, but we're not going to participate in a convention where people are drummed out over stuff like this. And there are churches like that, people that I've talked about like that, so that so that we wind up losing some churches that are complementarian in practice and terminology mm. and who who leave because they're just offended at the at the idea that the convention operates this way. And then, you know, I think another thing that could happen that would be maybe a bad outcome would be if we adopted this amendment. We excluded some churches over it. Some churches appealed 
came back to the appeal, and they and it turned out to be a church that has somebody serving as a women's pastor, and they and they use the term pastor to refer to somebody who only serves women, and 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 let's say that that they're that they're led by pastors, elders, overseers who write books about complementarianism and are well known to be an affirmation of complementarianism. They stand up there, the male pastor elder group, and they make the case, and the convention winds up voting to sustain their appeal and to contradict our own, own constitution. constitution. Yeah. And I I think a lot of what happens with this list in Article 3 is that we're trying to put handcuffs on the messenger body that we can't actually lock. Mm. Mm. And I think it creates a, a really bad situation for us if the messenger body winds up entering into a, a vote on a specific circumstance where they wind up disavowing uh, an article in our own constitution. Bart, I'm gonna because he's not here. I'm gonna say this uh, in what I think is defense of of Mike Law. So Mike, I reached out to back in the spring, and I called him. I got his number from someone. I called him. I said, Mike, you don't know me. I'm not a pastor, but I care deeply about the convention, and I don't have a clue who's reached out to you other than me. Uh, and I don't know if anyone's reached out to you that disagrees with you. Uh, but I wanted you to hear from someone who agrees with you theologically and just thinks this is not the uh, the best course of action. Constitutionally, uh, I said I'm I'm 100 complementarian. We are in the same camp. I just I don't think this is wise, and it's it's resulted in frankly what I would consider to be extremely gracious, godly uh, back and forth between me and Mike that goes back to March or April, uh, both on the phone at the convention and and a lot of texting since then. Uh, I think Mike is a good godly man, a good godly pastor who is. Responding to it, what he is, it's a genuine concern for him. And it's a genuine I, concern for a lot of a lot people. of people. Yeah, but it's sure. certainly, it certainly is for him. Mike is not some political operative who's out to. No, he, he's 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 motivated by what he absolutely believes. Mike to be the serves right thing. close to some thoroughly yes. e egalitarian churches that remained he in sure the Southern does. Baptist Convention he for sure a long does. time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I want to say this one thing in Mike's defense because I used the phrase holding a gun to your head when I was on the phone with Mike and he took great umbrage to that. And while, while I do believe that the ultimate result of what the law amendment is trying to do objectively does provide an ultimatum, uh, he, he felt like that was an unfair characterization. And I, I said, hey, man, that's not my intent to be unfair in my characterization. I do think objectively that what you're doing is like a – you provide a – if you don't change, you are no longer a part of us. Um, but I, I do. I think it, it deserves to be said in the conversation. Mike's a good, godly man. Um, I just happen to disagree with the uh, actual implementation of how do we go about getting to the desired result, which is only only biblically qualified men serving as pastor, elder, overseer in our churches. Well, when I use the phrase "holding a gun to your head," I'm not talking about Mike's intention. I'm talking oh, about know, I'm talking know. about the reception of people that makes them shut off any chance of persuasion. Yes. That's that's agreed. Only to why is it that when people get into this topic, some of them I had somebody say, I'll go to a meeting, but I don't want any theological lectures about how we title folks <laughs> and whatever. And um and I said, Well now <laughs> you've got to let people explain why they believe what they believe. And it's reasonable to let people give theological rationales for why they believe in complementarianism. And so that 
that statement to say, well, I don't want to hear it. I mean, that's somebody who is uh, angry because they feel like an ultimatum has been placed in front of them. So I think it's, I think it's fair to say that that's not Mike's intention. I know it's not And his I think intention. it's also fair to say that that's the way some people are receiving it. Yes. And and that the the pertinent point is because they're receiving it that way when people look and say, "Why don't you just change?" because I've heard people say that, "Why don't they just change the titles?" If they're really complimentarian, yep. why don't they just change yep. the titles? Because you've ticked them off. <laughs> and because they're Baptists and they're independent and 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 we're just stubborn sometimes if we get in the wrong frame of mind. And so I think it's relevant for talking about that. You know, one of the one of the other um, things that I think was attempted to be done in trying to uh, massage this, move this the law amendment along was by Juan Sanchez. Juan, who we all know, a faithful pastor here in Texas, um, came about and kind of made a, a little bit of a tweak to Mike's original uh, motion and then made the motion and Mike kind of joined on to that. And one of the things that, that Juan tried to do there was to add the phrase biblically qualified men, which Rob just used a moment ago to say, hey, if we're going we're gonna to only have biblically qualified men as pastor, elder, overseer. Do you feel like that that adding that phrase biblically qualified men perhaps introduces some unintentional consequences to this amendment that the credentials committee may then have to sort out on the on the backside if it were to pass? So I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the worst thing that podcast guests. That's do. great. Do it. I'm totally going to ignore the question you just asked. That's me. fine. <laughs> Beca- because. I want to I want to add on to something that we've talked about a moment ago, and that is I talked about best case, worst case if the law amendment passes. I want to take a minute to talk about best case, worst case if the law amendment fails. I, th- I think I think it's important for Mike to have a chance, for others to have a chance to hear me say that. I think the the best case if the law amendment fails is that people look and say, "Yeah, but look at what happened with Saddleback. Look at what happened with Fern Creek." Southern Baptist Convention, this doesn't change the fact that the Southern Baptist Convention is absolutely complementarian. It's just that the convention didn't have the appetite to go meddling into titles that people are using in their churches, and they just didn't want to jack around with that. I think the worst-case scenario, if it fails, is that people look and say, hey, there's room for us to move away from complementarianism and move to egalitarianism. And people report and say, Southern Baptist Convention open to women pastors or whatever else. Mm. And, and I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm not just advancing that dispassionately. I am concerned that if the amendment fails, that it could open a door. Uh, a lot of the people who are in favor of this amendment that I've talked to are worried about a slippery slope that that they look and say, well, this may not be bad by itself. Give it 10 years. But where does it lead? And I'll tell you, slippery slope arguments are not invalid. Mm. Uh, uh, Look, uh, Andy Stanley exists, right? I mean, look around and see so many cases where people have gone down slippery slopes and so I just think that it's important uh, for us to consider um, the validity of that. But 
But it doesn't have to be a slippery slope argument. The protection for a slippery slope is to put a guardrail up somewhere, but you get to choose where you're going to put the guardrail. Yeah, uh, You can put the guardrail by saying, we're just not going to employ any women with any title anywhere in the church. That's obviously not what we've decided to do. So even when you acknowledge the validity of a slippery slope, finding the right place to put the guardrail is important. And I don't know why the guardrail has to be where people who obviously are not serving in the office of pastor uh, are a problem because titles are jacked up. Uh, Bart, you are the president. You will moderate this. It's it's a guaranteed thing that you will be the moderator of this vote, this debate. Lord willing. <laughs> if you, and if the creek, yes, don't, if the rise, creek don't rise. Yeah. That's right. if, uh, yes. all, things, all things going as planned. You will be there. Uh, you will oversee the vote. You won't get to vote. Are you able to say what you would vote if you were not the moderator? If you had not been elected president, you showed up, and this was just something you were going sit to sit in the seat and raise your ballot one way or the other? Well, I'm going to moderate the meeting fairly. Um, a year ago, I might have been a little more— well, I mean, I've said that I, that I would vote against the amendment before, and, I, and that's, that's still unchanged. Um, I, I would have been more nervous about doing that last year because I had not had the opportunity to demonstrate that I am committed— to a, a, to a just moderation of a meeting that allows ev- the messengers to have their say. It doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the messengers say. And I'm still committed to that, but, but I absolutely would have voted in favor of the, the, the disfellowshipping of Sad- or declaring Saddleback and Fern Creek not to be in friendly cooperation, but I would not have voted in favor of this amendment. My um, one quick follow-up to that: you, you, I, I sat next to you at the SBTC in 2022 when a very similar measure came before those messengers. You were in your first term as SBC president, and had, I think you had said, "I'm not going to go to a mic, but I'm here. I'm a messenger in Texas, and I'm going to, I'm going to vote." And that other similar, not identical measure came in terms of how we interpreted the Constitution of the SBTC, Southern Baptist Texas Convention. You did vote for that. What's the difference? In the SBTC, I think we have greatly reduced incidents of churches that have done something different with the terminology uh, in their congregations. I think it's a safer thing to do in the SBTC, but it still does affect some people in the SBTC. Um, I trust the SBTC to work out a better solution than that. Uh, but I think that, again, I said a minute ago, there are, there are potential negatives when you vote something like this down. I do have legitimate concern about, this, about the potential negatives when you vote something like this down. I'd rather we didn't face the question. Uh, but I think that the number of churches affected that really are complementarian in the national SBC is substantially greater in scale than what we would face in a newer state convention in Texas that already has the Baptist faith and message as the standard for cooperation. Bart, we appreciate your time in talking with us about cooperation, about the BFNM, about the Constitution, about uh, potential amendments in Indianapolis, and certainly we'll be praying for you as you moderate that discussion and know that it is your intention to do that uh, fairly in a Christ-honoring way, in a way that the messengers have their say. And uh, that's one of the great things about our convention is you're exactly right. The messengers will make the decision and uh, and then we'll have the opportunity to, to go from there. Please do pray. I am both... Uh, wicked enough and dumb enough to mess it up apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So I appreciate the prayers. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Baptist Review Podcast. The Baptist Review is committed to helping facilitate better conversation towards a better convention. For more information about the Baptist Review, you can check out our website, thebaptistreview.com.